Hello and welcome to the menu Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next half an hour we'll cross over to Italy for one of the country's most interesting wine fairs. We love producing wines using Prefiloxera wine because uh, do, doing this uh, we are really connected to tradition. Then we continue to Portland, Oregon, where Japanese outdoor brand Snow Peak showcases its culinary focus. And a bit later in the show, one of the world's best-known experts on Japanese food, Nancy Singleton Hachisu, explains why vegetarian cooking from the country deserves its own book. It's a Nancy Hachisu curated body of material, so you're going to see a lot of color, because that's what I like. All that here on The Menu on Monocle Radio. First up today we cross over to Sicily to explore the world of wine at Sicilia en Primo, an annual tasting event that brings together dozens of leading wineries from across the island. Hosted this year in the picturesque seaside town of Taormina, the gathering allows international press and critics the opportunity to sample the latest vintages of still sparkling and dessert wines made from the island's wealth of indigenous grape varietals and meet face-to-face with the winemakers. We sent Monaco's correspondent Ivan Cavallio to the proceedings and he brought back this report. Italy is blessed by the wine gods with vineyards in each of its 20 regions, but few have the allure of Sicily. One place to taste its diversity of soils, grapes and microclimates is at Sicilia Imprimeur, a yearly event put on by Assovini Sicilia, the region's wine association. The most intriguing appellation today for critics is Mount Etna, an active volcano, which only makes up 1% of planted vineyards in Sicily, yet features rich fertile soils and many old vines. I meet Michele Faro, owner of Pietro Dolce, to learn about Etna's appeal, led by the local red grape, Lavella Mascalese, and the noble white Caracante varietal. And now I'm putting... Uh... Archineri e Tanarosso, which is one of our crew, which is made with Nerello Mascalese, Prefiloxera vines, which is very typical of Mount Etna. And um, we love producing wines using Prefiloxera vine, vines. And uh, because uh, do, doing this, uh, we are really connected to tradition. Doing this, uh, we, 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 we continue the tradition of Prefiloxera vines on Mount Etna. And uh, and uh, we love it, and that's why we also use uh, Carricante Prefiloxera. And, uh, you know, my grandfather was a small wine producer on Mount Etna, and uh, we want to keep continuing doing what he was doing many years ago, and uh, that's what we do with our wines. And in terms of the, the food pairing for this, for this red, what do you recommend to eat with this red wine? With the wine I am pouring, I recommend... Uh, for sure, white meat, it could be... Because it's a wine, you know, very elegant. Finesse, minerality. So white meat, like chicken, lamb, uh, or wineotto, also a nice tuna steak, if you want to pair food. Because a tuna steak is almost uh, a meat piece, so you can pair even uh, even with tuna. And with your, your white caracante, what, what do you like to serve? Is it, is it more of a summery wine, or do you think it's something that goes year-round? 
we also produce uh, Caricante. We have uh, three labels of Caricante, an entry level, which, is, uh, which has a complexity, but it's a younger vines. But then we produce uh, using a very old Prefiloxera vineyards. Uh, on the eastern slopes of Mount Etna, we produce uh, two Prefiloxera Caricante vines, Archineri Etna Bianco and Sant'Andrea. So I would say that they are, uh, the, the last two wines are gastronomic wines. And uh, the first one is uh, simple, but anyway com- complex. So the, the first one is, uh, yeah, perhaps a summer wine, but the other ones are more gastronomic, so you can really do nice pairings with them. After Michele Faro's booth at winery Pietro Dolce, I then try other prominent Etna producers including Joel Morusso, Custodi, and Graci for their reds, and Cantina Maugeri, known for their white wines. Then I turn south to the province of Ragusa to try more indigenous red grapes, like Nero Davola. Biagio Di Stefano is export manager at winery Cos. So now I'm pouring our Cerasuolo di Vittoria Classico 2020 from Azienda Agricola Cos. The wine is a blend of Nero Davola, 60%, Frappato, 40%, aged in uh, big barrels for about one year. Uh, the vineyard is located in uh, pure limestone with only 40 centimeters of sand. So although we are in the southern eastern corner of Sicily, uh, we make wine with great finesse, elegance uh, and great uh, longevity. They're very age-worthy wines. Typically pairs really well with uh, uh, local dishes like caponata, dishes pay- based on uh, tomatoes. But it's a very versatile wine. You can also drink it with a body, with a rich fish, but also with some white meat. Next, we move to one of Sicily's satellite islands, Pantelleria, to sample the Zabibo white grape, made both as a sweet dessert wine and dry white. Isabel Giglia is PR manager at Cantina Pellegrino founded in 1880. Now we are tasting Isesi 100% Zibibo Pantelleria Doc. As you may imagine, it comes from Pantelleria, a very beautiful and unique island between Europe and Africa. It's called the Black Pearl of the Mediterranean. Here, there's a very peculiar cultivation of the uh, Vite ad Alberello, the uh, winers in sapling that has been recognized as a UNESCO heritage uh, in 2014. Uh, Isesi is a white wine. Uh, it is uh, a very uh, floral and fruity at nose, but it is also well-balanced and elegant white wine. And this is the Zbibo grape that we're talking about here. It is. Which is usually known for the sweet wines of Pantelleria. Exactly, exactly. Which you have now one that you're going to pour. Of course. We have the Pastito Naturale, sweet wines made from uh, Zbibo grapes, here again in Pantelleria. And uh, it is uh, very intense and floral. It is an award-winning Pastito Naturale wine. Indigenous grapes dominate the tastings, but wineries here aren't afraid to experiment with outside varietals. At Fazio Wines, a fourth-generation producer from Trapani, owner Lili Fazio talks about her project to grow Müller Thurgau in Sicily. We are very proud about our work, also because we have pioneered the introduction of an international grape varietal. In particular, our flagship wine is our Müller Thurgau. Müller Thurgau 
came from uh, North Italy, but we have decided to cultivate uh, in Erice, 500 meters on the sea level, uh, three hectares. Uh, is um, something uh, amazing because uh, uh, Sicily is uh, totally different uh, uh, than uh, Autriche, Germany. So the general situation uh, of climate is uh, totally different. But we have decided uh, to, uh, to try to cultivate this Müller Turgau and the results have been uh, uh, absolutely excellent. Uh, the perfume, uh, uh, the concentration of this wine. Uh, of course, uh, we take a lot of care because uh, uh, the maturation process is very, very fast. Uh, really different than uh, in, uh, in, Nord, uh, in Nord Italy. Uh, the characteristic is uh, the smell of uh, aromatic uh, incense uh, Müller Turgau always do, but also blended uh, with the sun of Sicily. I mean, you can find uh, almonds, uh, you can find also Mediterranean uh, herbs, uh, and uh, in the mouth it's very long, uh, uh, it's very elegant, uh, and uh, is uh, persistent, and very good to accompany Sicilian seafood, from ancient winemaking traditions and century-old vines to new initiatives in the cellar, Sicilia and Premier provided wine critics and their palates with an incredible array of still, sweet, and sparkling wines. Paired with the incredible panoramas and terroirs of the island, it shows how powerful the siren call of Sicily is to attract lovers of the grape. For Monocle in Tauromina, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thanks to Ivan for the report. Meals cooked while camping don't tend to be very exciting. Having said that, sausages on sticks wouldn't work on a Japanese camping trip where cooking a proper outdoor dinner is considered essential. Enter Japanese outdoor brand Snow Peak, which can outfit the outdoors man or a woman with a complete camp setup, kitchen included. When Snow Peak debuted its North American flagship store in Portland, Oregon in 2020, the company included a nod to its culinary emphasis, a restaurant. Takibi is an Isakaya-style dining room that shares a roof with a retail showroom for Snow Peak's camping line, which includes a similarly named piece of cookware. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs explores how Snow Peak is luring in customers who become diners and vice versa. First, he spoke to Molly Urban, Takibi's general manager. Yeah, so our most popular grill item is our miso black cod. It is a cod that has been marinated for a couple of nights, and then we just grill it over the grill. Uh, and we actually do, in, in Takibi, have a charcoal grill and utilize the Snow Peak titanium grill racks keep everything simple so we do a lamb chop that comes out and it's just the grilled lamb chop with a little sesame uh, rolled spinach and sesame seeds Uh, and then we always have a rotating vegetable right now it is a cabbage dish that's brushed with an a5 like fat and then put with um, a spicy japanese mustard vinaigrette it's only a couple ingredients on that and then the other part of our menu is our sashimi section which is another like very pride and joy of ours Uh, again our chef cody auger runs a very uh, famous omakase restaurant in town called Nimble Fish, and so we utilize his fish connections to get our program up and going as well. So we get um, fresh fish from Japan twice a week. 
and it is uh, usually four to five items. What we're known for is our albacore warayaki, which is our grilled, or is it's sashimi, so it's still raw, but we smoke it over the fire. Again, our charcoal grill, um, but it's smoked over our straw, so you get all this, like, smoke from it. So it's, the outer layer is barely smoked, and it's still raw, but it's definitely another big hitter. Our chef de cuisine, Mateus, always recommends using the grill racks from Snowpeak. They are very durable. They're titanium, which is what Snowpeak is known for, is using a lot of titanium equipment. After I tasted the deliciously smoky black cod and albacore warayaki for myself, I, I did want to learn more about Snowpeak's offerings. Could I really make a meal this delicious the next time I set off for the woods to go camping with friends or family? My name is Nick DiCarlo. I am the flagship store manager for Snowpeak here in Portland, Oregon. And uh, Snowpeak is a Japanese camping brand. We really focus on bringing people together outdoors and the healing aspect of nature as a whole and how we can provide a better experience for people while enjoying the outdoors. So for customers who've come to the doors here and had dinner at Takibi, they, especially ones who, who realize that they could actually improve their own camp cooking experience, what products do you recommend and, and can you describe the, the relationship really between the restaurant and the store, you know, noting that the, the name of the restaurant is in fact the name of one of your key products? I would recommend the Takibi Fire and Grill. Takibi actually means fire in Japanese, so that's where the name comes from. The reason I recommend the Takibi Fire and Grill is it just makes this really great, um, uniquely camping grilling experience. Uh, it stems from the Takibi itself, which was a fire pit, but we made a set that accommodates, you know, your camp chefs. So the Takibi is a stainless steel, super durable, collapsible fixture that folds down flat and when you open it up it kind of gives you this cone shape and we added some elements like a base plate for the grease that drips off so it doesn't get all over the ground or all over whatever surface you're cooking on top of as well as a uh, grill bridge um, which holds the grill net um, and you can use the grill net to get that traditional cooking uh, grilling aspect or you can switch it out for some cast iron pieces that we use to cook uh, your traditional cast iron dishes um, or even a pasta dish and then there's also a coal bed so you can have that barbecue feel with, with cooking with charcoal or if you want that smoky wood flavor you're absolutely more than welcome to cook with wood. Describe how the the store and the restaurant uh, work kind of in a mutually reinforcing way, you know, especially as you have retail customers coming in who may or may not know that you have a restaurant. How does that dynamic play out on sort of a day-to-day basis uh, as a retailer? Absolutely. Um, it's truly a, a unique experience. Um, the great side of it is people come in not knowing who Snow Peak is, but they found Takibi on their favorite restaurant recommendations. They'll go eat some food, and then because we're connected, they wander through the retail store to exit, and they gain some interest for some of the products that they used while eating and enjoying their meal. Um, that happens on a daily basis. And then the flip side is people come in, and they really enjoy us as a brand and want to enjoy us in different ways other than just the product. There's this cross-pollination between the restaurant and the retail, and it it creates opportunities for satisfied customers to leave with more than just a full stomach. If you fancy, let's say, the cup 
out of which you sipped your mezcal cocktail, or maybe the chopsticks that you were using to pluck those fried oysters off the table, then you can just pop over to the shop. Or if it's after retail hours, you can actually buy directly from Takibi at the restaurant. I, I like to think of it in thirds. I would say a third of the people come into Takibi and know that the restaurant is there and come just for the restaurant. A third of the customers come through Snow Peak and enter through the Snow Peak side and come for the retail. And the other third realize that both exist. So it's a really fun relationship. It's the first time I've worked in a restaurant with a retail space. Um, and so it's definitely an interesting relationship where the retail customers can come in and shop and buy these, you know, buy the bowls, buy these cups, and then go out to Takibi and eat off the bowls and eat off the cups and really see how durable they are. You know, we are in a restaurant, and so the fact that we're using all these bowls and these chopsticks, they get used a lot so that they know that they're going to be durable and that they're holding up really well. Thanks to Gregory for that report. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs reported from Portland, Oregon. Monocle's July-August double issue contains our annual Quality of Life survey, where we rank the world's top cities, meet local heroes, and tour the neighbourhoods getting it right. See if your city made the cut and where topped our livable leaderboard. Elsewhere, we head to Bratislava to meet its architect-turned-mayor, visit an innovative infrastructure project in rural Alabama, get down on the dance floor in Mexico City, and take a thrilling ride across Europe's theme parks. The issue also contains a business report into the owners reviving their high streets and tours a design icon towering above Valencia, plus much more. Kick back this summer with Monocle's July-August issue. Order your copy today or subscribe to get instant access online. You are listening to the menu on Monocle Radio. I am Marcus Hippi. Nancy Singleton Hachisu is a familiar voice to many of our listeners. Some years ago, she released Japan the Cookbook, which is one of the best books on the topic released so far, partly because Nancy has spent most of her life in Japan. A follow-up to her groundbreaking book is out now. Japan the Vegetarian Cookbook is an impressive collection of 250 recipes for home cooking, and it's bound to change the way you view Japanese culinary culture. I caught up with Nancy when she was visiting London recently. I'm not a chef, but a chef will create a menu, right? And then you can sort of see, it's a short thing, but an author will pick a body of material. It's a Nancy Hachisu curated body of material, so you're going to see a lot of color, because that's what I like. The original recipe sources might use less veg, so I'm going to use more vegetables. So, you know, there's cherry blossom rice, it's beautiful rice. Or I love the potato chip salad. It's like you homemade potato chips that on top of this beautiful little salad with a curry dressing, vinaigrette, you know, and the carrot pilaf with carrot fronds, you know. So a big principle in, in the base of this cooking in the temple is to respect the vegetables and the process. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not vegetarian, but I am very veg-focused. And meat is kind of like an aside. You respect the multi concept, which some people think is wastefulness, it's not. It's about using everything you can to respect that somebody had grown that or the earth had produced that carrot, you know. And so 
that's a very important process that we should try for. We can we can forgive ourselves if we don't use the peels and things like that. But and also focusing on when you're cooking, you quietly sort of get into the process, and um, it's a thoughtful way of cooking. I think one example of that maybe what piqued my interest when I was reading this book. You mentioned that it took you two decades to learn to wash rice. <laughs> Yeah, it's not the process of learning it. It's about understanding it, I guess. Yeah, so in the heart of Zen Cuisine, the nun who my editor friend spent a year working with about this book, and he actually wrote the words, but they were from her. And she had talked about the process of touching the rice. My husband grows rice for the family, but it's a really hard job to do. It's using your back a lot and the weeds in the Japan are like monsters, you know, it's a really hard job. And so you, you respect every grain. You don't let it run into the sink and things like that. So rather than being a rote exercise, so here I was, California girl, I'm in my apartment in Japan and I'm, you know, listening to the words and, you know, I was like trying to be Zen and I realized it was just put on, but then there was just one time all of a sudden I was washing rice in the farmhouse. We had moved to the farmhouse the family farmhouse, and I was washing the rice, and I was in this quiet space, and I really got it. All of a sudden, it was like I was touching the rice and feeling it and just doing it because you loved the rice. And does it happen every single time now, or do you need to focus on getting it right? It's not about the getting it right thing. It's about being in that headspace. So, yeah, it does center me. And I actually don't eat a lot of rice, but when I'm making it, for sure, I take a beat and I stop. It's a calming thing, yes. Now, Nancy, we're doing this interview, obviously, in London, and you are in Europe for a reason. As part of promoting this book, you're also organizing cooking masterclasses and, mm-hmm. and, and dinners. And I'm just wondering, when you were traveling around, you were in the US as well a bit earlier. Yeah. Do you bring your own e- ingredients with you from Japan? Because when I'm looking at this book, there are many ingredients that I wouldn't find from my local grocery store, at least. Well, yeah, I um, I bring some, but I have a lot sent, actually through um, sources in Japan, my, my soy sauce, miso people. And, and you can find these things, but you, you just need to put some effort in. And then, um, and another friend, I mean, it's, I ask people to support. And that's part of like the community grow, building. And it's a way that I can, it's not to say, oh, here are these amazing ingredients and you can't get them. It's more that here, these are the benchmark tastes of Japan. And so they are coming and they are something that I want you to taste so that you will know how the Japan taste should be. And it's a very, I mean, mostly in Japan, it's people are just trying to put food on the table. That's just like every place in the world. So these are artisans that I I support. I don't work for anybody. I just because they are doing a beautiful job. And like all over the world, artisans are getting fewer and fewer. And so it's just to sort of, I mean, just to support the the community. Indeed. And, and in the beginning of this interview, you were saying the same thing, that, that you are kind of a voice from Japan now, considering that you've lived half of your life there. How do you More see, than half. <laughs> how, how, how do you see your role at the moment in that sense? Yeah, I mean... And this is my fifth book, and the evolution has become more and more about me introducing materials and also trying to tell, I mean, I seemed at this point in time the person that can say, okay, these 
products are like marketed products and they're, you know, fine and good, but they're, they're, these are the smoke and mirrors that are happening and these are the true authentic products and, and just, you know, sort of, um, there's this forest there and just trying to, to help people see where the authenticity is. And that's kind of my role and that's my responsibility is to, to give, give you authentic mm. Japan and support that. When you're traveling in Europe or you're traveling in the United States, tell me more about that. What you see, all the smoke and mirrors and the things that are not authentic. What do you come across? Well, there's a few things. Some, you know, unfortunately, some new Japanese companies or some companies that want to grab up money are marketing stuff that's not as it seems, you know, like a soy sauce that's, you know, got a really cool paper and then says it's, you know, this this artisanal soy sauce. But in fact, it's made from very low quality beans, very low quality salt. But it's got fancy paper that every soy sauce company on the island of Shodoshima is allowed to use if it's fermented in a, in a cedar barrel. So cedar barrel fermented, okay, great, that's good. But then it's poor salt, poor soybeans, and... I don't know what the water is, you know. So like, and they're selling it for what an artisanal soy sauce, mm-hmm. and that kind of has pissed me off. <laughs> so. Anything else that would have pissed you off recently? <laughs> the that salt that's supposedly made from harvested from seaweed, which is I think you know is an impossibility. So, <laughs> and you're boiling salt water. That's not a good thing for getting soft, gentle salt. So those kind of things, people want to believe or, you know, in an, it's it's a good story, but n- not really true. Nancy, what's what's next for you? What what kind of plans do you have for the near future? Well, these books, I mean, this the vegetarian book and also the Japan book, they're still like sort of my life work. And there is a couple books, uh, and I, I will stay with Fiden for whatever I do, but um, I'm hoping that we're, we're talking about doing a, a children's book. And um, I'm hoping that'll come to fruition because... It's a different genre that I've I've done so far, and but because I've had a school for twenty years, um, a preschool and and a little immersion school, I'm very excited about that. Um, but we'll see. But these books, you know, I will keep coming back. I'll be back in London. Mm-hmm. We'll see you again, Marcus. <laughs> Certainly, very soon. Thank you very much for joining yeah. me today. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time, which is at midday in Los Angeles. Also, remember our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. The programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio engineers were Callum McLean and Steph Chungu. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. From Japan, here is Terra Sonoda with Yellow Moon. Thanks for listening and until next week. Kururita mawa da da, kimochi ba u.